0: I geek out so much for a story. Backstories in particular I find fascinating. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I best consume information in New Yorker length chunks. And the conversation I had earlier today with my friend Ben definitely was one of the longer New Yorker style profiles. I know him primarily through the work that he has been pursuing in the political arena Uh, that's where we bonded but when I started digging into his high school and college years I became fascinated with why he ended up where he is today and so we get into all of that in then the following pod uh, I just think spending time with someone as introspective and inquisitive and Passionate has been is always a good use of one's time. So I hope you enjoy the following conversation. Music as always by Matthias De Wild. and thank you so much for listening. CK Ben, how's it going? It's really going quite well, all things considered. Yourself.
1: Can't complain, but as uh, Joe Walsh says, sometimes I still do.
0: Uh, so, where are you right now? Are you in Austin?
1: I'm in Austin, Texas.
0: Yeah. And what are your days look uh, like?
1: So, I am working at a, a small local law firm, and still working, thankfully. I uh, working from home, so honestly, it's not that different than uh, than a normal. but just the isolation part, you know, that's unique. And uh, tough to not be able to really go outside and enjoy Austin, but um, it's the the nature of the beast, I guess. How are you doing?
0: I am holed up in Brooklyn with my girlfriend. We have really set up my 555-square-foot studio to our best advantage. She's very busy with work and that imposed structure of her day has made me highly productive and motivated especially considering that my line of income earning has completely disappeared uh, as of second week of march so right it was dispiriting to say the least early on psychologically i pivoted very quickly uh, turned my attention to the therapy sessions that are these recorded podcasts, and you are my, you'll be my sixty eighth published interview on Spotify over the last like five and a half weeks, and wow, the imposed um, scaffolding of setting up the microphone and the GarageBand and plugging in the number. I actually called the wrong number for you first and somebody else answered and that was embarrassing. Um, But then, like, I'm sitting in a closet right now and my phone is away. and I'm totally focused on this conversation. And once we hang up, then I'll go and edit in GarageBand and then publish it. And all of that, the focus that it requires to do this podcasting, (laughs) despite the fact that it's just, Kind of for me and and the my interlocutor and you know our small circle of friends whoever that is uh, that focus has bled over into a lot of different parts of my life and so I'm feeling more motivated and on top of things than I I was prior to COVID um, the narrowness of this life has actually been uh, sort of a wellspring of inspiration for me.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, it, and it, it makes sense. I mean, I remember in college, I always got better grades when I was in season playing sports than when I was out of season. Because uh, that that sort of discipline sort of makes you value you, your other time more and just be more efficient and also appreciate the moments that you do have. Uh, so that's awesome, man. Glad to hear it.
0: And one of the things that's been interesting to me is the... For the first time in my adult life, there is zero FOMO. And for those of you not familiar with that acronym, that means fear of missing out. But there is literally nothing to uh, miss out on. And so I've always found that psychologically distracting. This idea that, oh, I could be doing something better than what I'm doing right now. I'm missing out. I'm missing out. I'm missing out. And there is nothing to miss out on. And I have found that um, sort of as like aloe vera on my soul, uh, which always burns to do something more uh, intense and fun. And so like not having those external distractions um, has been, it's been great. And so uh, I, I wake up every morning really fired up and, and ready to get to work on my little projects.
1: It's That's uh, pretty sweet. Have you ever, have you heard of a guy named studs turkle
0: yeah uh he was the journalist who um uh, he was a journalist right i'm getting that right yep and I, i might be getting him and george plimpton confused but weren't they sort of similar in that they did a lot of experiential um uh reporting like they would go and like Really uh, immerse themselves in whatever they are doing, or am I getting a little confused
1: there? So, in a sense, you're right, and in a sense, you could not be more wrong. Um, so, so Stud Terkel was. So he was a journalist. So I don't know if he had a sociology degree, but uh, effectively, he was that. And he was a. Um, he he did that book, uh, Working, which is where he went around and interviewed people. Who were like bus drivers or cab drivers or waitresses at diners um or electricians and he just asked them about their lives in in ways that sort of they never would have been asked otherwise and he recorded all of them um, so he's this very famous sort of like blue-collar bard uh from the chicago area and george Clinton, although he definitely did a lot of experiential reporting um you know he super upper class went to yale founder of the parish review um, and he did things that sort of were interesting, like fun for him. So like you know he played minor league baseball or something like that. I think right, and he was like a bullfighter. So like he got he, in the ring with cool. Ali,
0: and he like right. took some snaps on the offensive line of the Minnesota Vikings. Bizarre shit. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. So a little more like entertainment
1: driven, but yeah, I mean in a sense they were they both immersed themselves. Um, but no, Turkle, I think. You know, I was listening to. I've been getting deep into my my podcast archives um, and I listened to some of his interviews uh, about uh, like two or three weeks ago, and and they were just they were really really fascinating because they're all from the '70s, and so some of them are you know interviewing people about jobs that were going to be automated away and asking them about their fears and all this stuff, and it was just it's fascinating that there is that record that exists, and so I feel like in your in your own way you are creating a record of this moment um, that, you know, will be around, whether (laughs) or not people listen to it, it will be around.
0: They really are time capsules. And I think that there is some innate value uh, in the fact that they're accurate snapshots of what people are thinking and doing in something that that I know is a very outlier experience in my 37 years. Yeah, for sure so one of the things that I have really enjoyed about this is getting people's backstories and for the listeners out there a bit of context Ben and I met at a political fundraiser in uh, Brownstone in Brooklyn um, I would say sp- early spring of last year and we hit it off uh, as sort of an odd pair but uh, Ben is, what are you, six foot three, six foot two? Six five. Six five, Jesus. So Ben is uh, considerably taller than I am, uh, almost a full foot. Um, And we were in the back corner and started talking about Mayor Pete. And I think close to an hour went by and we just still were locked in animated conversation. And it sparked a really fun friendship for me because you and I both had an interest in political speech writing and the various candidates who a year ago were still um, campaigning to win the nomination but that that is sort of the extent that I know about you going into this conversation and I just got a glimmer of excitement when you said uh, back in my college days, I'd be super focused um, because uh, during sports seasons, um, time was so valuable to me. And so for myself and for the listeners, can you give me a, a bit of background about where you grew up um, and what sport it was that you played in college?
1: Sure. Uh, so I grew up in New England, so born in Boston, uh, childhood Outside of Hartford, Connecticut, and then my family actually moved to the Upper West Side of Manhattan when I went to college, uh, and I went to college in Western Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, I played football for just one season there. Um, what was your I position? That uh, I was offensive line, left tackle. So I needed to put on about sixty pounds and keep it on, and it was just going to be. Way more work than I realized. Uh, and for a Division Three program where we played eight games a year and I had zero shot or desire to go to the NFL, I was sort of like, I'd rather be a normal college kid and enjoy my experience. Uh, and so that was just sort of a decision I made. And, and now looking back, I'm glad I made it with all of this new information about CTE yeah, um, and the head injuries and all that stuff. Cause I, I don't think I ever had a diagnosed concussion, but I mean, I was banging my head into someone on every single play. So I'm glad I stopped sooner rather than later.
0: Did you play O-line in high school? Yeah, yep. And did you go to a private high school in, uh, in Hartford?
1: I did. And so my dad actually is, uh, uh, headmaster. So oh, he's like the Dumbledore of all of my schools. <laughs> and, uh, so it was, it was an amazing childhood. It was a great way to grow up because the school and like the gyms and weight rooms, and all that stuff were effectively my playground. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but then, you know, when you're 15, 16, 17, and you want to start sort of getting into trouble that, you know, it's less fun. Of course. Um, but, but it was, you know, people liked him, even the the sort of bad seed kids at the school like him because he he was in a frat himself and i mean he showed me the movie animal house when i was like six years old so we you know he got it um and he one of his earlier jobs had been in the dean's office at dartmouth actually as the liaison to all of the fraternities so that and that was in the 80s that um, must have been so quite he, an, sort of, an
0: experience for him yeah he's he's got some stories for sure does he have time to jump uh, on a podcast to to discuss what it was like being a frat liaison at Dartmouth in the eighties? Because I'm sure that could fill up a solid ninety minutes.
1: Uh, I bet it could. I also could guarantee you that he would not do that because mm. right now, right now, he is the head of a, a boys' school in Manhattan, um, and is this is his, his his last year. So he was supposed to retire. We were supposed to have a big dinner for him in uh, in May and that's now been canceled. And so he's sort of managing the school remotely from, uh, his spring break vacation home in Florida, which he went to in March and just sort of never left. Um, so that's been a a really interesting and, and trying experience for him.
0: I'm sure. Um,
1: and we, you know, we keep in touch a bunch, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy for everyone for sure.
0: And so, how did you distinguish yourself in high school playing O line, being a headmaster's son? Well, like, how big was your graduating class? Only about a hundred kids. And because the class was so small, did everybody kind of interact with each other, and there wasn't sort of the stratification socially that you see maybe in a bigger high school?
1: Yeah, for the most part. Um, And my class was unique um, for whatever reason. Uh, All of the people that when my dad got hired in 1992, all of the people that he hired in the administration and some teachers, they all had kids who were my age. So there were like six of us in my graduating class that had known each other since we were three years old, Uh, which, you know, was super fun. And one of my best friends in the whole world you know, his dad was the Dean of Students and was our football coach. And, you know, I was at their house every weekend. So it was a, it was definitely a unique childhood. Um, And, you know, I, I loved it for sure. Uh, But, but yeah, everyone, everyone got along pretty well.
0: So when I was applying to colleges out of Sacramento in 1999, it would have been Amherst was one of my top picks. Um, I was in touch with the tennis coach there. Um, I hoped to play D3 tennis uh, and ended up not being accepted. I think I might have been waitlisted at Amherst, um, but I definitely saw the allure of that education. How was it that you ended up there?
1: Um, so, my dad actually went there and graduated in the 70s. He actually football there also and so I I after you know having sort of been under the shadow of the headmaster for so long when I was like a sophomore I was like screw this man I want to go to Stanford I want to get as far away as I can like I'm done with like everyone knowing who my dad is and like fuck this and uh first I looked at my grades and said well Stanford might be a little bit out of my reach. And, you know, and I, and I really did like football and in high school and knew that I probably wasn't going to be able to play D one. If I wanted to play Ivy, I knew the commitment that it was going to take for me to get on the field. And I was like, "Mm, I don't think so. And so it really came down to these small new England schools um, like Amherst, Williams, Middlebury, that sort of thing. And so, I, you know, I went to go visit every single one of them. And it turns out that Amherst was just the one where I felt the most comfortable. How funny is that? You know, it was crazy. And so I sort of was like, well, try as I might, you know, this makes the most sense. I'm not going to be stubborn and just not go just because of that one reason that my dad went there. Um, and, you know, it was obviously a totally different experience. And there really weren't that many people around who knew him. Actually, the the one person that knew him best was uh, one of the old campus police officers ha. who had just returned. He had just returned from serving in Vietnam um, and his dad, I guess, had been a campus police officer. So he started working, became friends with my dad, like, you know, helped help make sure their fraternity all graduated on time. Mm-hmm. Um and he definitely lent me a hand one or two times when I was an undergrad. So that, you know, that paid. Wow.
0: I love that. That is that is quite a uh, multi-generational legacy story.
1: It it really is. And and one of the things that I appreciated even more about that school in retrospect is that you, there are a lot of those sort of multi-generational stories or connections, even if it's not blood relation. um, you, you get people who have been, been through the same experience and it, it, everyone's sort of like, you know, it's this understanding, um, that like you all share these very similar values and you sort of feel comfortable wherever you go. I, it, in in some weird ways, it's like meeting uh, an American person in a foreign country, and you're sort of just like give each other a little head nod. You're like, yeah, bro, I see you. I got you.
0: Great. Uh,
1: but, yeah, I don't know. I Was it like that at a bigger school? Because you, you went to Duke, right?
0: I went to Duke, and my experience was so, in a cliched sense, fish out of water. Um, I did not possess the social tools to make much of, to make as much out of my Duke experience as I could have otherwise, I faked so much of my time there, um, even though I didn't really know I was faking it. And it wasn't till uh, a year or two after that I was able to look back and be like, "Oh my God, that was that was such a weird thing to be a part of," um, and it, it helped me a lot afterward uh, to be able to understand and parse. Socio socioeconomic dynamics that just were not part of my public school upbringing in Sacramento, um, and I've really been able to capitalize on that knowledge now in working at Christie's and then Phillips and Heritage and then being in the high end philanthropy world. Um, but Duke, me at Duke was sort of uh, a disaster in a lot of ways.
1: Did you fall in more with, like, Southern crowd? Was there a New York contingent that had been built up yet? Because I know there's a fairly big one these days. Huge.
0: There's a big Southern contingent. There's a big prep school contingent. There's a big Long Island contingent. Um, You know, I'd meet people from California, and I would really want to bond with them. But a lot of the California kids had gone to prep school or they'd gone to private school. Um, I... Ended up feeling most at home uh, with uh, proto hipsters. They weren't theater kids. They weren't stoners. Um, they really were what you what I then came to meet in Williamsburg in the mid aughts. Um, they just were a little alternative, um, a little niche. They threw great parties, but they were on the kind of standard frat um, uh, templates. Uh, you know, they had very distinctive. Styles of presentation. Um, And so that was who I felt most at home with. Um, But I mean, freshman year, I was so out of sorts that I almost uh, pledged a a historically black fraternity because um,
1: (laughs) it it was a. That would be the most CK move
0: ever, by the way. It it was such a segregated campus. And coming out of Sacramento, uh, a lot of what organized me and my friend socially was sports and music and the type of music uh, and partying that I was into I only saw in evidence at the BSA parties Black Student Alliance parties and so I just like freshman year I w- gravitated toward that um, but it was, it was an interesting thing for me to be like the only white kid at parties and be having a lot of fun uh, and just kind of be comfortable but it seemed inauthentic at the end of the day. Like I, I didn't feel that it was, I, you know, just had such a shared different, uh, set of experiences that I, I didn't quite feel like that was, uh, the right move for me. Um, you know, I, I think I could have gotten through with it and made it work, but it would have been a little bit too much fronting. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a, it, it was a, 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 you know, I was also like ROTC my freshman year. I was on an Air Force ROTC scholarship, which was super weird, too. Um, this was all before 9-11. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I had a lot of different micro-experiences in college.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it, but that's also, I mean, that's awesome. That helps shape who you are, who you become. Um, so, I'm, I'm sure it was it's all beneficial
0: well look it, it allowed me to be able to code switch and go into a lot of different environments um, and be fairly fluent and comfortable in those varied environments, which I think has served me well in a lot of ways
1: yeah, and uh, I, I mean I think that makes so much sense, and I think that's uh, both in a purely political context and just more general sort of social Context that inability to code switch is a source of so many of our country's problems because everyone has these experiences that are just so divorced from other people um, or, or on the surface, right? It seems like that, and so we create these barriers to say, like, oh, well, you know, I don't have anything in common with this person. I can't talk to this person when. If you could, if you had those codes, those ability, this ability to just communicate on a superficial level and kind of break the ice, without a doubt, when you get deeper, right? We're all still people, and I'm sure there are a lot, there is a lot in common, um, but it's that inability to just like talk about sports with someone, um, or like talk NASCAR, or talk country music, or talk rap, right? That is like, well, I guess I don't have anything to say, so I guess I'll just not engage and it's it's disappointing and i'm by no means uh perfect at it uh and definitely have my my blind spots but um i'm super grateful for all the experiences i've had that have allowed me to, to gain these perspectives uh because you know at the end of the day it's like we are all in this together as cliche as that sounds um and as much as it doesn't feel like it but you know, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on, on how we sort of break through all this bullshit and, and the, the partisan noise and polarization and actually start getting things done again?
0: Right now, and my perspective sometimes shifts daily, uh, I think we're more on the culture war end of things. I think that it is going to be a battle Uh, for the soul of the country. Um, And I think that that is exemplified in part when the president of the country goes onto Twitter and types things like liberate Virginia, liberate North Carolina, liberate um, Michigan. That, I think that is uh, a battle cry. And uh, I think it, it is a battle cry that is directed toward uh cultural grievances um in in a really um profoundly dangerous way um but we'll see you know i think that there just are a lot of people who are incentivized um you know either economically or politically um to to divide us and to have us at each other's throats um And I'm not sure if we're going to be able to overcome those uh, de-incentives for a while, but a lot will change in the coming months, especially uh, when our fellow Americans go to the polls and vote that first week of November.
1: Yeah. And, and the, the most worrying thing I guess about this new strategy of Trump's, I don't know if you can call it a strategy strategy sort of implies like a a conscious mind at work, being deliberative and making choices, but um, you know, I, I think he, he he set up this dichotomy, right? By which, if things get better, he'll take the credit. If things don't, he'll just blame the governors, and like no facts or reason or anything can sort of puncture that that little like framework he's set up, and. So I don't know, like, how does how does a Joe Biden? How do you? What's the narrative? Like, how do you counter that? And in a, in a way that is going to sort of inspire or appeal to people that you don't already have in your base? I can't imagine that you're going to win those people who are on the steps of these state capitals with you know automatic weapons, but you know there are people you you could win conceivably. Um, but I don't, you know, how do you even reach them?
0: It will be interesting to see how much economic pain they are feeling on election day and how much psychological pain they are feeling and, you know, how much emotional pain, whether or not they, they lost someone close to them, um, from the virus, um, or if they know somebody who got sick. And I think that those three things are going to, Combine into how they vote the ballot box. Um, and if, you know, they feel I, I think that the, I think that that sensation, they'll either say, I deeply believe that Trump is a person to alleviate the sensation, or I believe that he's the one in part who made me feel the sensation in the first place and I want and I, I need to change it up. Um, and I think that, <sighs> I think a lot of that is gonna have to do with messaging. Um, Trump's really good at creating so much noise that nothing else can be heard or understood. Um, But, you know, I think that if we are gripped by this pandemic um, for 10 more months, um, or eight more months, sorry, six more months, uh, then people are going to get tired of that noise and, and are going to, look for other solutions, um, which is a really general way of speaking, but so much has changed in the last six weeks, uh, forecasting out with too much confidence, I think is a fool's errand. Uh,
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's totally fair. And, And my concern is, I guess my, my biggest concern is, you know, the, the Biden vision to the extent you can sort of say he has one is, right, you restore the soul of America. What does that really mean? And if it means, like, let's get back to the Obama years, the Bill Clinton years, like, that America wasn't good for a lot of people. I don't know if that's an America that a lot of people actually want to go back to. And so, you know, is that an, I'm worried sort of, controlling for all those other factors, which is impossible to do, but let's pretend like we can. I don't know if that sort of vision alone is, is it going to be enough?
0: And the question is, does that vision in terms of winning the White House, that vision has to be compelling to a, let's say a 20% sliver of Active voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, maybe Arizona, maybe Georgia. And the election will hinge on that middle 20%, from my understanding. Like, it doesn't really matter if it resonates with large swaths of voters, whether they're in California or Alabama, um, you know, if it's in Mississippi or New York. Like, like Kansas is not going to go for Biden regardless. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think Massachusetts is going to go for Trump regardless. But uh, I don't know what s- an unsure voter, an uncertain voter in Ohio thinks about uh, Obama circa 2012. Uh, or what they think about Clinton uh, circa ninety six. I just, I I don't have my finger on that particular pulse.
1: Right. And right. And, and, you know, who, who does, and I, the way that I've always tried to think about this stuff is just put yourself in the shoes of that. It's just an exercise in empathy. Right. And, and, you know, I, I have relatives who are, pretty upper middle-class, suburban, college educated, not super political, but like informed in the sort of regular average citizen sense. And, you know, they are the like stereotypical, I'm going to work hard at this job. I'm going to provide for my family. I, you know, want my kids to do the right things and have a good life, like all that stuff. And like, from their perspective, when you look at historically what's happened over the last 20, 30 years, when you look at what both parties are saying right now, it's like I'm always looking at political messaging through their eyes and It's hard for me when we keep hearing the same democratic policies or, or sort of the like values and signals that are used to communicate those policies, you know, we've heard them so many times now and Whether or not you think they're sort of objectively right or wrong, or whether you think they're morally right or wrong, the reality is they haven't produced any results because we haven't been able to pass any of them. And so, you know, if you're if you're that sort of person hearing these signals, like what about this time is going to be any different? And I know that Biden's trying to make the case that, well, you know, I I can work with Republicans and all that. But the only major legislative achievement that the democrats have had when you hold for the the like you know financial crisis bailout and stimulus except for that the only major achievement is obamacare like what what else what other top line you know democratic policy item have we actually done <laughs>
0: I don't know. It's tough because it came through the courts, but there there is a case to be made that the cultural achievement of equality in gay marriage is something that is uh, a result of efforts uh, from progressives. Um, and I, that might not be a, a useful thing to put into this conversation because um, it did come up through the Supreme Court and Anthony Kennedy was able to vote on the right side of history, despite all the other terrible things that he did over um, his career. Um, the worst of which may be uh, stepping down so that Kavanaugh could have his seat. Um, right, but you know, it, like that—that that seems like the the right sort of movement for me in the way that I see the world. But I I know that it. Um, not everybody, unfortunately, agrees with me in that regard. So I, I don't know if that is something else we can put into this conversation um, in a valuable. No, way. and
1: there's there's no and there's no like there's no denying right that like that was a good thing. The world, like we as a country, the world, people are better off for that having happened. Um, but to your point, like to your point, it was the courts and it was outside progressive groups sort of pushing the system, lobbying the system in the right ways for a, a, you know, decades long period of time. And Frank, like the bottom line is that change does not materially impact the vast majority of Americans lives. Right. And so you're thinking about it from the perspective of people are, if not inherently selfish, self-interested. And so, a lot of people like and even in terms of culture right they want to see someone in power who's like me someone who understands me and so like look it's a good thing i just don't know if that's really a part of most people's calculus for who they choose to be president
0: this idea of is he or is she like me um I, uh, I got a little off track in terms of um, how I like to shape conversations. And I'm, I, I only know you from uh, last spring on, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cycle back, we're going to put a pin in, in, the, in the current politics, because I'm very curious to know, from your own viewpoint, what you were thinking your junior year of college. and and what you saw in your own future um, around that time? Uh,
1: Interesting question. So I wasn't thinking a whole lot. um, And that was pretty scary to me, both at the time and in retrospect. But everyone I was around had sort of set themselves up to go into finance. And I was like, I really don't want to do that but I didn't really know what else I was going to do. And from a pretty young age, like was always interested in politics, but uh, the one course, my dad used to be a history teacher before he was a headmaster. And the one course he taught was um, still at the high school was American foreign policy. And so it was a lot of like post-Cold War history stuff. And you know, there were books about like FDR and Truman and LBJ and Kennedy everywhere in my house. And like, that's the shit that I grew up reading. And there was always this notion of like, you know, this country gave us a lot. You've got to give back somehow, however you do that is up to you. And, you know, growing up in this sort of post 9-11 world, it's crazy that you were going to college. Or applying to college in 1999 because like I remember I was in seventh grade when 9/11 happened, and so I thought well like oh if I'm gonna serve the public like I guess U.S. foreign policy like State Department that's a cool interesting way to do it, and so I studied history. My focus was on the Middle East, um, and I was sort of doing it and I was interested in the material, but I took Arabic. I didn't like didn't really love it I couldn't bring myself to just like commit to to doing you know to going that route and so you know this thing that I thought I wanted to do I'd sort of tried it and wasn't super into it and I knew I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing and so I sort of I was you know I had this like existential crisis at like 22 and was just like what the fuck um because I think I've been so focused on, like, achieving the gold rings that had been, like, set out for me, both by, you know, my parents and by society or whatever. Uh, and, and all of those were really designed towards, like, getting to college. And so once I did that, I just breathed this huge sigh of relief and sort of, like, stopped thinking or stopped, like, worrying about what was next. Mm-hmm. A, because my entire life, someone had always been there to tell me what was next. And B, just because I was so fucking exhausted from doing all the work before just to get there. And, and I, you know, I was very lucky in that I applied to a fellowship to study abroad in Egypt um, for one year after graduating college. And so I got that and it afforded me just a, another year effectively to have like a, a nice thing on the resume. Um, but, but it was really just a lot of time to travel and think. it was basically like a, a funded gap year, which was super, super helpful. Um, and like on the back end of college instead of the front end and, you know, I just got to read all of the stuff that like I wanted to read and was interested in and had never really had the time to read before. And I sort of like figured out, you know, who I was and all that very like eat, pray, love sort of. Of shit. course. Um, and, but, but it was, it was sort of like, it, I I was sad that i had had all this sort of like privilege in my life, but I had never actually taken the time to do that work before. And it sort of hit me that like, you know, we as a nation and as a society, like we have all of this material wealth, all of these resources, but it's all geared towards stuff that like doesn't matter in the big picture sense, right? Like me doing that one year of work was sort of invaluable in ways that I'll never be able to actually describe. And almost none of that had anything to do with the way that like my parents conceived of the world or the way that like American politics talks about the world and, or American society looks at the world. And I was just like, man, that, that sucks. And like maybe that's a reason why people are sort of disillusioned with politics. And like, I don't know what, what does it look like to, if you were to be a, you know, if you were to write a speech or, or a message for a political leader to, like, more accurately conceive of that world or to envision, like, policies to to sort of help, I don't know, support you doing the shit that actually does matter. Like, what does that even look like? What does that sound like? And how do you do that in a way that's not, like, cliche and, and sort of trite? Um, and that's super fucking hard. But that I don't know in 2012 I guess that sort of seed was planted and it's just like percolated for the last eight years and it's like it's something that I think about non-stop and there's still not a good answer um, which is maybe why no one's really doing it but I feel like it's the only thing worth thinking about because like if if we don't I don't know if we don't figure out a way um, to sort of rethink what it means to, I don't know what it means to like be alive and how government sort of supports you in that journey. Like, I don't know. I don't know if anything else really matters that much. Uh, Obviously like defense and health and like making sure the world doesn't sort of fall apart. All that stuff does matter, but that's sort of, that's the baseline, right? That's the foundation that's it's going to be there no matter what. We'll do it better or worse depending on the given year. But, you know, the really important thing is realizing like the world doesn't look like it did in 1945, 50, when this whole system was sort of created and we got to figure out what comes next and And we got to figure out how to explain that, how to tell that story to people. Uh, and it's hard because uh, you know no one's doing it. and And I think the reason why we bonded was because Mayor Pete, it, maybe imperfectly, was trying. And I th- I thought that was you know that was certainly a worthwhile endeavor.
0: He really was trying to tell a story, and I put that word in bold, italics and underline. Uh, about where we were in history and where we needed to go and what drove us in one direction or another Um, understanding that it was society and the human beings who make up society that um, are at the steering wheel and uh, I, I I think that he was a master storyteller in that regard.
1: Yeah, and I I think I was sort of disappointed. Um, the more viable his candidacy became, the sort of the less he drew on that narrative, and the more "quote unquote" conventional he became, um, it, to the extent where he almost just became a parody of Obama, <laughs> um, uh. po- pointing uh, pointing specifically to his Iowa victory speech uh but but i think i think he's just he started playing to the older voters in iowa and new hampshire and and to the older donors who really didn't quite get the story pete was probably telling and weren't prepared to go with him all the way but really saw him as like the best of what the old rules in the old system could produce much in the same way as people saw that in Obama in Obama rather um excuse me and and I think that's sort of where he lost me because you know like we said a while ago that system wasn't great for a whole lot of people and I think part of the reason why he did not expand his base of support is because it's hard to look at African-Americans in the eye or uh, Latinos in the eye and say, yeah, that system, it, it's pretty good. We're going to make it better. But like, you should you should follow me because it wasn't good for them. And it wasn't easy for them to work for change, even within that system. And it, yeah, it's it just it's sort of. The things that drew me to him, I didn't see there by the end of his campaign, but maybe you have a different take on that.
0: I want to get there, but I'm still stuck in my traditional linear chronological storytelling mode. And I'm fascinated by this year you spent in Cairo uh, and these kind of deep questions about how you want to spend your time on this earth and how that fits into... A greater narrative in a post-1945-1950 world um, and then as Mayor Pete would probably say in the in a post-Reagan era because uh, Pete's initial formulation was that we are living at the tail end of a world that Reagan created um, and it's in this election or the next um, that will we will really uh, be shifting to a post Reagan era. Um, so what, what was your post Cairo mindset and in not just a mindset, what actions did you take with that mindset? Like what, what were the choices you made in the schooling that you took or the, uh, the jobs that you, uh, that you were paid to do?
1: Sure. Uh, so I basically left Cairo being like, man, I really like writing and I really liked a a particular kind of writing, which was someone who is super smart, bringing all of this context to a subject, either, either American politics or American pop culture and like teaching you about the world through covering that topic. And so I mean, like the most sort of obvious example of that is David Foster Wallace, uh, who I have like a weird Northeast white dude affinity for because like, I don't think that's to, weird. I think that's Amherst.
0: normal. I think that you and I bond over a lot of things or, and, and DFW weird, weird is, being, <laughs> is one of them.
1: Weird being stereotypical is the right word. Weird was not the right word. Yes. Stereotypical. Um, but, but, uh, but like, you know, he went to Amherst and played sports and stopped after like a year or two and his dad went to amherst and played sports and like it's obviously i am nowhere near as smart as that guy but uh it's it's this weird like that sort of the amherst like nod or bond or whatever like i could see a lot of that in his writing like i i sort of understood his writing in, in a unique perspective because of that, but but um, you know whether it was him or like John Jeremiah Sullivan mm-hmm. and his uh, his articles or shit, I mean, uh, like Rachel Cazzy Gansa writing about Dave Chappelle in The Believer, um, it was just like it was so cool to like learn about the world and ideas in that way.
0: So and you were in a full early mid twenties, uh, appreciation of great essayists, essayists and kind of contemporary essayists.
1: Yeah. And it was, so it was in what it, what I found was that it was either, um, fiction writers who were being paid to write nonfiction, or it was journalists who had a really unique voice or point of view. So it was that like, it was that point of view or like, I guess people would call it like authenticity or truth or whatever, but it was, you know, I wanted, I wanted someone else's truth to help me understand the world. That was packaged
0: Uh, aesthetically in a way that, uh, in writing terms is known as a voice.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, and right. And something that sort of sounded like my voice or like sounded like a conversation that I would have. Like, I I don't, you know, I'm sure that um, Ta-Nehisi Coates does not have my voice, right? But like he writes in a very accessible way uh, and he might not drop as many pop culture references as like uh, a DFW or even like a Rembert Brown who wrote for Grantland for a while, who I also really love. Um, his, his essay on Colin Kaepernick a couple of years ago was incredible. Um,
0: I used to party it, with it, Rembert Brown. We lived in the same building. Jesus,
1: you are just a f- down with <laughs> insane connections and stories. Yeah, um, he, he, I he's think, out in uh,
0: L.A. now, I think, or San Francisco working for Twitter. Um, but I'm hoping to get him on the pod uh, once I surpass 100. That's
1: really, really cool. Well, I, I'm a super fan of his. Um, and yeah, so the... I think like, that was like, that was my church, right? Like, I I would go into these stories and just learn, um, or like George Saunders, anything that guy wrote, right? In his book of essays, The Brain Dead Megaphone was so incredible. Um, anything by Joan Didion was amazing, right? And like, it was, it just, if I I came back from Egypt from that experience being like, man, I'd love to write and Of course, this is like post 2008 when journalism is effectively dead. Uh, And so while I was doing a bunch of interviews when I came home, a buddy of mine who I had known from summer camp, you know, super young age, uh, he posted something on Facebook. And it was a YouTube video of Obama um, giving a speech. And he's like, you know, some corny like, oh, LOL, I love my boss. Uh, and so I guess he was working at the time as the youth vote director for the Obama reelection campaign in New Hampshire.
0: Oh, cool. And
1: I was, I was unemployed. I had very few, if any marketable skills. And so I, I, I reached out to him on Facebook message and was like, Hey, uh, I've never done anything on campaigns before, but you know, I would love to help however I can. Let me know, like, I'm happy to intern and work for free for a while. Just like, I want to help, you know, let's be in touch. Uh, and he called me up almost immediately and was like, hey, we actually have this job opening for a field organizer. And if you can be here in, you know, two weeks, you've got a job. And so I I was in Manhattan and I said, yep, done. Pack my shit drove up to Manchester, New Hampshire and was a, a field organizer for Obama for probably almost seven months. Good um, for you. So I love
0: that. Yeah,
1: man. It was it was so incredible. Uh, it's really hard and thankless. But, you know, I I looked at it from the perspective of this is like this is the thing I care about the most and this is the thing I can do right now to have an impact like an actual material impact on that thing um and i think this is the best possible use of my time and i'm you know so happy to do it uh and i met so many incredible people both like campaign staff and just the volunteers and again it's like it's hard to talk about this because it's it's now so cliche but like these are adults like retirees with real lives who like, aren't being paid to do this, and they're not 23 and have no sort of obligations. But, like, they're choosing to take the time to, like, do the things that actually help a
0: candidate win. And it was
1: really, it, it was democracy at the ground level, and it was so cool.
0: And so, Obama wins re election, and you're celebrating. What happens on, what was that, like, November 8th, November 7th?
1: Yeah, we have a, we have a meeting with the uh, deputy state director who says, this is how you go on uninsurance or unemployment, and here's how to get COBRA. Uh, And we were like, oh, okay. Um, And, and, you know, I was in a different position, like I knew I could go crash at my parents apartment or whatever, Um, but I wanted to go down to DC and I wanted to try and work for the administration. I was like, well, that seems like the logical next step. Um, So I I got to crash with a family friend outside of D.C. in Bethesda. Um, You know, I started an internship for my Congressman Jerry Nadler from the Upper West Side, um, who is now the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, So back then he was just like a nerdy, uh, wonkish guy in the minority who cared way more about New York City politics. And so we, you know, didn't see much of them, um, but it, again, awesome experience to just get inside the the offices and see how all that stuff worked. Um, but as I was applying for, so I started applying for communications jobs there and thinking like, you know, I'll, I'll get a foot in the door and start on a path to becoming a speechwriter in some way, because um, there's no real path for that. So I figured in the meantime, I'd look at communications jobs while I was interning for Nadler And while I was doing those applications, I read this book, The Unwinding, by George Packer, who was with the New Yorker and now is at the Atlantic. Uh, and he definitely has his own he's a writer with his own voice and point of view. Um he certainly is. from a different from a different generation. Um, but he you know, he sort of embodies for me like my dad's voice, like it's that. I know America's not perfect, but overall, you know, it's done more good than bad. It's provided, it's given a lot to my family. So I love it. in this weird, idealistic, maybe messed up way, but like, I love it. Even though I see all the shitty stuff. Um, And so that book, The Unwinding sort of did something for me that, I guess confirmed that the feeling I had coming out of college and that sort of like existential what the fuck about doing all the things that America and my parents told me to do, but still feeling totally adrift and lost. um, His, that book for me sort of like put, gave a larger context to like why that feeling existed. And it was like, Oh, it's because, The world that was created or built for us is just this system of laws and policies and social norms that were maybe the right ones and also the ones that were politically possible for a certain point in time. And as the world has changed and our society and economy and our culture have changed, those rules have, for the most part, not changed with them. And it's created this huge disconnect. him sort of telling the story narratively through the lives of individual people, both at like the top and the bottom uh, was just mind blowing. And and as a quick aside to that, last year, um, when I was working at this big fancy white shoe law firm and, and one of the partners who sat next to me, he's not a partner anymore, he's the chairman emeritus of the firm, um, you know, he said, he's, he's friendly with, uh, George Packer. And he said, man, and he was a huge, huge political donor was on Bill Clinton's finance committee in, in 1992. But he said, man, I really wish more people had read the unwinding. I wish I had read the unwinding before 2016. Cause if we had, I, I bet we, I bet we could have done better. And I was like, yeah, no shit, man. Uh, it's, That was frustrating because I think what what, what Packer was doing was telling this story that the, quote unquote, elites and establishment sort of didn't let penetrate into their their own worldviews.
0: Well, now I have to read the the great unwinding because I'm very curious to know how it foretold uh, in some way this era of Trump.
1: Uh, it, It. it's wild. So the the point of that, I guess, is I I read that and it, it struck me and I was like, Oh, this is a really, this is this issue. And the way that it impacts the economy is the thing. And my 23 year old brain was like, okay, like maybe people don't know about this. I'm going to like draw up a strategy memo and like a, a media strategy around this issue to like, to help sort of publicize it and also help us run on it um cuz my th- my thinking was all right if we got to get shit done and we need a majority of the majority in order to pass anything in the house which at that time was right means most of the republicans in the house need to be on board with something before it goes to the full house for a vote which is called the hashert rule although it shouldn't be called that because that guy was a child rapist who's now in jail, but that's neither here nor there.
0: Wait, is Dennis um, Astart in jail right now? I didn't know that.
1: I, he he was for sure. I don't know if he still is.
0: That, that's some good news for today, that or a fun fact that I di- wasn't aware of. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so you get this idea to write a memo inspired by Packer's book. And you know what a steep mountain that is to climb because of uh, the unfairly called Haster rule.
1: Right. Well, I guess I'm writing the memo as a way to, as a way to like, to, right, to overcome the Haster rule. In effect, I'm saying whatever whatever our message frame is right now, us as Democrats, has not been sufficient to win over these like gerrymandered all white districts, whether they were sort of Freedom Caucus districts or not, right? It's like basically no, no matter what Democrats said, it wasn't going to either move those politicians to vote or it wasn't going to sufficiently move their constituents to vote them out. And so I was like, well, what else could we say that would apply pressure on, on those, those districts? And like that could sort of light a fire under those voters. So at the very least, if we couldn't win those seats, the, the members would be sort of pressured to actually act and get things done and compromise to produce for their constituents. And so I, I thought, well, you know, if, if you're just a, a sort of an all white district, and we're Democrats, and we're we're not going to compromise on on the core principles that underlie all these policies about fairness and justice and equality. Then, like, where's the common ground? What can we actually talk about? Right? It's I, the economy. I, stupid.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not picking up what you're putting down. This is starting to make sense to me.
1: You are, or are not? I am.
0: I am. I'm. I'm. Okay. I, I'm, I'm starting to get a sense of. What you are trying to accomplish vis-a-vis these all-white Republican, Republicanly held Republic, Republicanly, Republican-held, God, English is hard Republican sometimes. Republican-held gerrymandered districts, like in, and, and, yeah. and this idea that how how can we speak to these voters who aren't going to necessarily be inspired um, by our. Uh, messaging that comes out of a coalition of um white black hispanic uh, gay straight um all the different alliances that make up the democratic party uh when speaking to a slightly more monolithic um, group of people
1: right and and so that i mean i think for me this is one of the big fault lines with the i don't know traditional democratic party establishment machine whatever you want to call it um I don't disagree with any of their, any of the policies or principles, but it's just that we've seen that, like, there is a sort of ceiling as to how effective they are. And so maybe just try something different. Um, And that's sort of what I was advocating for. And there was one application that I submitted and, you know, I wrote what I thought was a really solid memo for whatever it was worth. And the, the communications director re- replied like, you know, thanks, but no thanks, basically. Um, and like, I guess that like maybe they're just, they went with someone else. I get that. Um, but like sort of not even acknowledging that it was a good idea or that like it was, a, it was an interesting point. I was sort of like, and, and I'm sure this was just like me having a bruised ego and jumping to conclusions. But I, I, my reaction was, man, I don't think these guys get it and I don't think I want to stay in D.C. for the next four plus years working for no money, sucking up to people who are going to lose. And so I I went back to New York and applied to law school, basically.
0: How um, How angry were you or were you more resigned? Like, what was the uh, state of your soul? <laughs> um. I was,
1: I, it was a little bit of anger, but like also I knew I was a snot-nosed kid with no actual experience and like no real data. Uh, so I I'd sort of, it was weird. I've never felt more confident about any idea I'd ever had in my entire life. But, you know, that guy doesn't know that. He doesn't know me. Uh, and so I was, it was more resignation. Um and more a realization that, you know, from my vantage point, I was just not going to have a really significant impact on, on sort of, quote unquote, the conversation one way or the other. And it was just a better use of my time to go get a graduate degree and, and learn about the law so that I can put myself in a position to have that impact down the road.
0: And so that's what you did. You ended up at law school and at a, as you said, a white shoe law firm in Manhattan where your boss was friends with George Packer. Yep. And uh, and was the, the entire time you went through law school and then started working in corporate law, was getting back into politics and political messaging always your North Star? Yeah,
1: yes and no. Um, that's definitely the thing that I enjoy doing the most, but you know what we want to do and what we end up doing are not always the same things. Uh, and so I, the real North Star was like, given my my interests, given my skill set, uh, and just given my sort of who I am as a person, how can I make the most impact? um, In like for where I am right now, in the moment we're in right now, and that was always sort of the north star, and that was why, that was really why I got involved with Max, because um, so I was like, man, this guy, this guy just gets it, and he like, really does. Win or lose, like yeah, and I was like, win or lose, man, I, he he just needs to be someone who is on the scene, and I want to help him however I can, and you know, at at the time, right, that was financially. And I was like, I'm happy to do that. Like, I know this is going to be worthwhile win, lose, or draw. Um, So that was was the mindset while I was at this law firm. But I also had the mindset of, I only want to be at this law firm for a couple years max. Because it's just, I knew it wasn't a sustainable lifestyle for me and for what I sort of wanted to do overall. And the reason why I came to Texas was because... Um, you know, I do like practicing law. I like having that sort of day job and a skill set outside of politics. But in Austin, it, you know, it's still a very strong legal market. You know, who knows? What, well, it was who knows what that looks like now. Um, but it was a strong legal market. It was a, a an awesome mid sized city with like culture and arts and sports and all this amazing stuff. And it's You know, it's just not as expensive as New York or San Francisco. Um, And it was in a swing state or effectively a swing state, right? Like this place is going to be purple, certainly within a decade, if not sooner. Um, And and to my mind, I was like, well, so being living here and being able to walk outside and go knock on a few doors for a candidate, whether that is a presidential candidate or the local DA, Knowing how important that is to any race at any level, um, I was like, that's worth it to me to be like, because I know that if we can make this state a swing state, that changes everything.
0: It certainly does. So I just,
1: I just thought this, like, for what I'm interested in, for what I can do and want to do, like, there's no better place to be. And that was really what drove my decision. Uh, and, and, you know, it's what I had been doing up until a lot of this, uh, the self quarantine stuff, but, um, it certainly had sort of borne itself out and paid dividends in that respect. So I, you know, I was, and am thrilled that I'm here. Um, but that was, that was really the thought process. And I think the, the messaging stuff, if it comes up, if it comes around, great, I'd love to contribute, but I also know that, you know, that's that's its own beast.
0: Uh, And, you know, who knows? Focusing on that and the near past for just a moment more, over the summer and the fall, you and I were in dialogue a fair amount because we were trying to figure out if we could get our foot in Mayor Pete's campaign. Uh, in the door there and then I know that you had a first break with him and I had a tryout uh, which I'll go into in another podcast but I filled you in before uh, where I thought I had a really good opportunity to make some uh, progress in, in terms of connecting myself with his campaign and I screwed that up um, it, it would have been hard to screw up more um, except that I almost did screw it up more but it was bad regardless. And you started uh, looking into options of joining um, some other campaigns. And it wasn't just you were looking into options, you were doing the actual hard work, which really impressed me. And that was, I think, the the main difference between the two of us is you actually put pen to paper and were uh, creating these PDF documents that laid out um, in very clear in real terms, what you wanted to do for uh, a range of candidates. And can you talk us a little bit through that?
1: Sure. Well, I'll also say that at the time I didn't have a full-time job and you did. So don't sell yourself too short. I've never uh, had a (laughs) full-time job
0: at any stage in the last six years. And so that, that is an overstatement as well.
1: Fair, fair enough. I had clients, um,
0: not a full-time job.
1: Fair enough. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I i i figured before leaving New York, I wanted to sort of take my shot at doing speech writing or messaging for one of these primary candidates. And um, a lot of it was a lesson in, in just the fact that those campaigns are based on You know networks of people who have worked with each other on past campaigns and and sort of a level of like trust and loyalty that if you are a non-campaign person you just are going to be at a disadvantage inherently no matter what um and and i think to some degree that makes sense because in politics all you have is the trust with other people on on your staff um obviously the downside of that is maybe the best ideas don't get heard uh but again that is a lesson that I learned. And um yeah, it, this was basically just it. I was attempting to distill all of this thinking, I guess, that I've done over the last seven, eight years at that point, um, into an actionable message for candidate X, Y, or Z, um, including Pete. And, and in some ways that, that was easier because all these candidates already had uh their messages and so it, it was some to some extent just trying to um tweet them on the margins and insert some of the ideas and change some words to make it you know less cliche or whatever um to emphasize certain parts of the speech like you know like we were talking about like pete's story about about change um and sort of explaining why why the, the why our politics? Why our policies needed to change? Um, and part of that was a struggle of like, how do you how do you do that in the sort of poetry of campaigning as opposed to the prose of governing? Um, and that was really hard. It was almost like, because I'm not a particularly artistic or creative person, but I was like, I, it's almost like like songwriting, right, or lyric writing or something. Uh, and I, the thing that I guess I had gotten caught up on was like, what is a metaphor that you can use that sort of does the trick, but doesn't sound like complete bullshit? Um, and I think for Beto is one of the candidates who I, I tried to write for um, after I had made the move to Texas and before he dropped out, right before he dropped out.
0: Like within less than a week, because you and I, I was up in Winnipeg uh, walking around uh, just town, not doing much. And you and I had a very lengthy phone conversation.
1: Yes. And yeah. And it was super beneficial. Um, And and I the the I guess the metaphor that I settled on for for Beto was this notion of like the map or a map right and like the, the the sort of old rules and the old bargain it, it it's not reality itself but it it was this map for how to navigate reality but you know if, if the sort of ground changes beneath our feet then like the map should change to reflect that uh and like even explaining it there is sort of is too prosaic but but trying to weave that image into into a speech and a story i thought was you know, that's sort of what I settled on as a device, but like that even coming up with that was so many months of work and so much reading and so much thinking. And like, and I, I did develop a certain level of like empathy for people in campaigns. Cause like, there's just no way they have the time to do that. Um, and, and I know that, and what I learned was that people aren't going to do anything Unless it can be tested, and and that was frustrating too because I think that like it's right. It's that old Henry Ford quote: "Like if I asked people what kind of uh, car they wanted, they would have said a faster horse and buggy." Um, and it, so it's just hard to test something that's never actually been done before because when people hear it for the first time or the second time or even the third time, like you might not get the reaction you want. You just have to you have to be able to trust in what you're doing. Um and so part of me realized like I I don't know if part of me realized I maybe I don't want to be a speechwriter, maybe I want to be a strategist. Um
0: but is that is that one of the things that that you are leaning toward now? Uh I that's information to me. Um are you a bit disenchanted with speech speechwriting and more interested in strategy?
1: Well, I think I, I Yes and no. I mean, I think what the value of speechwriting is sort of just not what it was when when this notion of what the speechwriter is in my mind was developed, right? And like that, the speechwriter is sort of Ted Sorensen with JFK, or you know, even the like the Obama speechwriters, and and I think that that has value but in today's modern media environment it has a lot less value interesting
0: why is that communication is
1: always well so communication is always valuable right and and sort of message and signal all that stuff is always valuable but speech the, the speech itself is is just a mechanism to deliver that and if people have i don't want to say people have shorter attention spans but there's just more out there to distract them um there's more noise and it's just i i think it's it's going to be pretty hard for people to just sit and listen to a speech uh and when most of the voters are going to consume a political message not through a speech but through a clip on the news through an interview through a podcast through an image even, or a meme, um, there's just diminishing value in the speech. Because I think, you know, obviously it matters if you're on the ground at a rally. Obviously it matters when you're making your presidential announcement. It matters at the DNC. It matters at, you know, the, the sort of big ticket events. It matters at the State of the Union, if only to, like signal your direction since nothing that ever gets said at the State of Union gets done. But outside of those like those big like tent pole events, I don't I just don't know if it's that important anymore. Um, but again, that's not to say that message and signaling is not important. It's just you got to find different ways different ways to deliver those to to where based on where people are now. Um, and I think that it was, it, it's interesting because I was unable to, so much of the message that I'm trying to uh, develop is about like getting outside of your own head, realizing that like the way that you see the world isn't the, the capital T truth. Um, it's just the way the world was at a point in time. And it's ironic that my concept of speech writing falls totally under that umbrella. And it took me a long time to even see that. Um, there is
0: irony there, is there not
1: a ton? And, it, but it also has helped me develop a little bit more empathy for, um, for people when I share this and they don't get it or, or, or for, you know, that quote unquote average voter, um, because it, it's like it's dude it's hard to change it's hard to be a human being like that it's so hard you know and like i'm thinking about this all the time and i'm still a sucker for like you know these these assumptions and these stories that have been pounded into my head for so long like, like if, if it's still going to happen to me like how much harder is it for everyone else like ah it's it's tough it's daunting but like doesn't mean if you can't try it just it just requires some like a little bit more humility and empathy. Um, but yeah, the irony was nuts. So anyways, uh, I and, and there's a perception of, of speechwriters within the political world as, you know, you really are just sort of the hired hand now. Um, and the Obama guys were the exception and not the rule. Uh, really, you are, your job is to mimic the voice of your principal and to write the speech the way that you think they'd want it using the inputs that you're given by, you know, the, the policy people and the chief staff. Um, and so the more I learned that the less I was inclined to want to do that.
0: That makes sense. And you used a word that I want to focus in on for a second humility, um, because, you know, oftentimes humility is, uh, counterbalanced with arrogance, but I think that it's also fair, um, to say, um, Youthful confidence and humility are two sides of the same coin. And I like the parallel of you uh, down in Washington when you were 23, reading Packer, putting together these memos, and becoming disillusioned uh, and going to law school. Um, because, you know, these memos that you believe so deeply in and took a lot of youthful optimism and confidence and not there wasn't a lot of humility um, threaded through that memo, I'm guessing. And and then, you know, just what a life-changing moment and transition that was uh, from being in D.C. to going through law school and getting a job at a white shoe law firm. Um, and then this next pivot uh, where, you know, you're like, hey, I I want to work for these campaigns and I want to be a speechwriter. And you put so much work into into those um, pitches that you were making. I I just remember being really impressed with it because there's a lot of people who talk. Um, I oftentimes fall into that category and I use talk uh, both literally and figuratively insofar as they have ideas but they very rarely do the work uh, to see those ideas realized. And you were putting together um, and you talked about it i mean it just it was a lot of work a lot of writing a lot of editing um, and then sending those to your various contacts you know barking up a bunch of different trees um, and then it's interesting you know with beto uh beto being you know the last the last stand in a sort of not the last stand but the end point of this part of your political journey where Trying to write this speech, and you're pouring so much of your heart and soul into it. And what an imperfect vessel he was in so many different ways. Right. And right. And the fact that you know you're at this stage in mid-October, where you have a you know a family friend, a friend, a connection who's con- then connected pretty high up in. Beto's campaign and you're trying to get a document ready to send to her that she has assured you will then be passed on to senior people in his campaign and then he drops out and th- everything that you've learned from you know that prior eight months of working on it just kind of comes to a because at that stage there just weren't that many other options because uh, you and I had talked about Pete, we talked about Kamala Harris uh, we talked about O'Rourke Um and I think that, you know, running up against that and, and having the humility to understand the limitations of what it is to be a speechwriter, um, I'm, I'm excited. I think that, you know, in the cliched sense, which we have said a few times now, uh, but, you know, third time's a charm And the fact that you have made the tangible decision, the real life decision to move to Texas and be part of that state's. Evolution—that's uh, a real thing. That's not talking. That's actually doing something. Um, and then the grounding of having uh, the job at the at the local law firm um, and doing the work in your free time. Uh, I, I as somebody who loves stories, I love that arc. Um, I think that it's it's a good story insofar as that you've worked really hard, faced challenges, and when you when your youthful um, confidence. Um, didn't necessarily go as you had hoped, uh, you, you have been able to reevaluate and change course and adapt and the, the humility that you have gained over the last eight or so years, um, I think is going to serve you very well going forward in, in any, in all endeavors.
1: Hey man, well, that was, that was very kind of you to say. And, and I, I certainly hope you're right. And, uh, appreciate you reaching out I'm really glad that we got to do this
0: I am too and you know what I what I hope for it is that um, this was just part one of I, I have a lot of time I know that you're you're working and don't have as much time and I've already taken up 90 minutes of your time today uh, but I'm hoping that our next conversation with this as a foundation uh, we can kind of look forward a little bit more instead of looking so much past because there is a lot to discuss.
1: Absolutely, no. And it, it was it was my pleasure to uh, to talk about this stuff with you. And like you said, we uh, you know, we had that super weird connection that first time we met, and uh, just, it's it's been awesome to to have you as a sounding board, um, because you know you you are someone who's been in the arena doing it too, and so you're it, on a personal level, you know, just in, in your job day to day, like you you have to. When you speak, you, you're looking for reactions from people. And as good as you think an idea might be, if it doesn't get that reaction, it's not a good idea. And uh, it, it's nice having having someone with that real experience and, and uh, to be able to um, give me some advice. And I'm happy to return the favor and have this conversation with you. I definitely look forward to more.
0: Well, on that note, um, thank you so much for your time and good luck. Uh, especially in isolation down in Austin, and let's uh, let's make sure that we continue this conversation soon.
1: Appreciate it, man. Yep, sounds good to me. Take All care, CK. Take care.
0: Bye.